Thank you to everyone who's helped lead us in worship today. We're grateful for all of you. If you have your Bibles this evening, let's turn to the book of Ruth. Let's turn together to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4 this evening. And it feels like it's been a long time since we've been together uh, in the book of Ruth. And so it's good for us to return and find our place in our study here. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. Join me as we read the first 12 verses here to set the stage and the context. Then by God's grace, we'll walk through Ruth's Redeemer part 3 here. Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. Now Boaz went to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken of in chapter 3 came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and then I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Well, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Well, the close relative said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and, and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elalamics and all that was Kilion's and all that was Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the, women who, the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Well, this is the Word of God. What a text we have before us. Amen? If you've been with us in this study uh, of the book of Ruth, we, it's been a long time coming to, to this moment right here. So much has happened, and we are now in the final verses and chapter of this book to where we see this story coming to a, a consummated end. 
We often have favorite songs that we sing in the Christian life, hymns and songs and, and choruses that are in our mind, and we have found ourselves quoting quite a few uh, in, this own, in this study of the book of Ruth. But one that came to my mind in the study of the lesson today is, is this, Blessed Assurance. How many of you folks, you like that song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine? It starts off like this, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Maybe that's rung a bell of remembrance for you. But notice this next verse. Perfect submission, perfect delight. This is what we see as a pattern of what Ruth has done before her personal God, Yahweh, who she has bowed the knee to. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. And all through this text, we see echoes of of, of God's mercy. We see whispers of God's love shown and expressed towards Ruth. And this becomes a song that we'll see. We will come at the end. This is a song, the song of that song. But this passage ends in a song as well. And it's a song of exaltation. What I want to remind us this evening that redemption is the central theme of Ruth chapter 3 and 4. Redemption this is the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of our salvation. God delights in providing redemption. And I, I think sometimes we, we understand that in the sense of when we get into the language of Paul, when we get into the epistles. But I want to remind us that God delights in providing redemption from Genesis to Revelation. The word redemption is pregnant with, with meaning. In fact, redemption assumes a problem, and it presupposes that people are in trouble, that they're trapped and enslaved in trouble, and that they need to be set free from it. And what we find here is that redemption is the key theme and doctrine of Ruth chapter 3 and 4. In fact, one commentator says this, God so delights in redeeming people and is so expert in it that he does not only provide one illustration of his redeeming work, but hundreds of illustrations of his redeeming work. And so as we look at the book of Ruth, we find just such a story. Many of you appreciate art or have a fascination in art. You see a grand masterpiece. You, see, uh, you go into a museum and you'll see something by um, Van Gogh or see something by one of the Impressionist painters or one of the Dutch painters. If you look through one of their sketchbooks or one of their books that catalogs all their paintings and all their works, what you'll find is that there's the masterpiece itself, but then there's the rehearsal, there's the sketches, there's pages after pages after page of maybe a finger. You think of Michelangelo's painting, I believe it is, of the, the, two, hand, the two hands extended pointing. And you'll find sketch after sketch of exact replica, mastering the, the likeness of human flesh. All of this, in, for an example, points to how God delights in perfecting and showing us pictures of redemption all throughout the Old Testament. And every time we see a story of redemption in the Old Testament, they're actually illustrative sketches that are in advance of, in preparation for what will be the ultimate masterpiece and the redemption that Christ will perform on the cross. 
Well, as we look in Ruth chapter 4, what we see again is this process of redemption. Last time together in chapter 3, we highlighted and walked through the process of the Goel. How Boaz is the Goel, how he is the redeemer. Fulfilling the law to redeem Elimelech's land and to marry Ruth and to raise up an heir for Malon. And so it's a beautiful thing as we kind of compare and contrast and think about this in light of Christ redeeming of us as his people. Now tonight we'll have a couple of thoughts to frame our, our outline around. Number one, the preparation that we see in verses 1 through 5. Number two, the predicament of the near kinsman. And then number three, the praise of the town, the praise of the people. First of all, I want you to note the preparation of Boaz, the preparation of Boaz. Notice that the narrator here takes great pains to show us in detail the drama that is in the text. And I will try to do my best tonight to pull it out. It can be difficult. I'm finding narrative preaching to be not easy. So bear with me and may the Lord show us what he would have for us from this passage. First of all, I want you to note the preparation of Boaz. And the first thing that he does is moves with, with, with quick alacrity. He moves with priority. He recognizes the priority of the kinsman who is closer to Ruth than he. Notice verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, it just so happened, the way the text renders is very similar to Ruth and Ruth chapter 2. It so happened. God is, we see the hidden hand of providence here. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by at that moment. We see the providential hand of God in every facet of this story. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. And so he came aside and, and he sat down. Now, the syntactical structure here is interesting. I found it interesting that Boaz simply responds to this person in a vague way. Friend. He doesn't call him by name, or at least the narrator does not write for us the details of who this person is. But more about that in just a moment. Now, what we find here is that Boaz's pursuit of Naomi and Ruth is very purposeful. Boaz and everything that we've seen about him is a man of purpose. He's a godly man. He's a man of his word. It didn't just happen in the by and by. He goes up to the city. He goes up to the gate of the city, which in the Near East was like the, the town square. It is like the courthouse where all legal transactions took place and were made. The buying and selling of, of property and animals, uh, the purchasing of, of certain items, Witnesses were there, notaries were there, the elders of the city were there. All official business was conducted there at the town gates, at the gates of the city. In an agrarian culture and society as we have seen, at some time, at some point or the other, this man is, is going to come through the gates to the market or for some purpose or for some reason. But yet our text tells us is that Boaz moved with haste, and no sooner did he move with haste, that God providentially brings this close relative, literally rendered redeemer in the Hebrew, uh, to the very moment at that very time. In fact, the word behold by the narrator is meant to tell us, uh, to, to add to the drama, to heighten the sense of vividness here. So Boaz is sitting at the gate and behold, the redeemer, the kinsman, the, the man comes by. And so Boaz uses this phrase, 
of whom Boaz spoke. Verse 1, so Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. So he came aside and, and sat down. Now this is an intentional omission of the man's name. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the narrator, does not want us to know who this man is. Literally rendered, it could be as a phrasing, Mr. So-and-so. Boaz called out to Mr. So-and-so, Mr. No-name, Mr. No-face, and just simply said, hey, kinsman redeemer, come sit down here. We need to talk. Now, why do you think that is? The Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. Everything that we see here in the scripture is purposeful and, and for a purpose, for a reason. We know who Boaz is, but we do not know who this man is. And it's because this man is, is not honored. This man, it almost seems intentionally is, uh, for lack of better words, self-serving, selfish. Everything that is opposite of what Boaz is, but more than what Boaz is, a redeemer. A redeemer who points to the Lord Jesus Christ. This man is not worthy of any more attention than we need to give to him. Notice verse 2, the second thing Boaz does is he wisely retains the elders of the city. Our verse says, and he took the ten men of the elders of the city and he said, come, sit down here. And so they sat down. Now, law said that only two or three witnesses would be needed at the most. But here Boaz is going above and beyond. He's intentional. He's tactical. He's shrewd. These elders, these men of age, were not accidentally passing by. Boaz has done the preparatory work of lining them up. Everything that Boaz does here is for a legal record. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 requires that only two or three witnesses were necessary uh, for a legal decision. But he intentionally brings in ten men more above and beyond so that the record would be clear, the conversation would be a matter of public knowledge. Leon Morris says this, In later time, in later Judaism, ten would be required for a synagogue. And Jewish authorities would cite that ten were to be present for the recital of the marriage benediction. And so one may assume here, it may be concluded that Boaz was preparing for the marriage ceremony by having 10 of the elders there. And depending on how this conversation is going to go, we're going to have a wedding today. Boaz is not letting grass grow underneath his feet. So he pulls aside tactically 10 elders. Here we see the plans and intentional scheming, wise planning of, of Boaz. He's intentional. He's making good on his promise. Now, don't forget, Boaz is appointing us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just by a side a point of application, friends, as we look at the redeeming work of Christ, there is nothing accidental to Christ and his love for his church. There is nothing accidental about our heavenly Redeemer pursuing us in our salvation. Everything that we've said about Boaz is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Boaz points to him faithful, personal, purposeful, intentional, sacrificial. And hopefully we'll see more about that again as we review this connection. Then we see, thirdly, he represents Ruth. This part of this preparatory work of Boaz, verses 3 through 5, he begins to represent Ruth and bring her case before the elders and to this closest kinsman redeemer. 
So the preparation. Secondly, we see the predicament of the near kinsman. The predicament. Verse 3, notice with me. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the far country of Moab, has sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elilamech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me. Notice this purposefulness in it. He has intentions. He wants to make good on these intentions, and yet he is going about this the legal way. No stone unturned. If you have no intentions, then tell me. If you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and then I am next after you to redeem it. Now this no-name, Mr. Friend here, simply says, I will redeem it. Why is it that he comes across in this text as a blustering idiot? Why is it that we see him coming into town, just living his, his merry way? Boaz is a man of esteem. Everything we've seen about him, he's a spiritual man. This man is, uh, one thing he can sense is if Boaz is, is if, if he's interested in it, I should probably be interested in it. And so the first offer, his simple response is, no questions? It's almost as if he's ignorant of the whole situation. Yeah, sure, land, yeah, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. So he saw potential gain for himself and just simply responds, focusing on the land. Now, there is much speculation on the land portion, the land aspect of Naomi and Elilamech's uh, property and, and all of that has not really been highlighted up until this point. And we will not spend time speculating and getting into the weeds of all of that. But one thing we can say for sure is understanding the law of Jubilee that even if this man marries Naomi, right now Ruth's not been mentioned, and he marries Naomi and he procures the land, that the land will remain with him. There, there is no chance, it seems, of, of offspring or children coming. And so all he sees is the potential gain for himself. There's no one in the year of Jubilee for that land to go back to. And so he quickly and swiftly agrees, yeah, sure, this is a, this is a great business transaction. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the land. So as we look here, Boaz continues. Boaz continues to give insight. He continues to give the instructions for what is needed for the land. It seems, though, that Boaz wanted to be sure to communicate the land first, to be above reproach. And you could say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, above reproach in regards to his marriage of Ruth. If he had first dealt with the marriage of Ruth and the closer relative refused, as we see him do here in our text, then Boaz married and acquired the land. It might appear uh, to the elders and others that he had ulterior motives in, in marrying Ruth. Or perhaps Boaz understood the financial strain that would be involved for the other relative in purchasing the land and providing for a bride and her mother-in-law, and he wanted to communicate everything up front. We don't know all the purposes and reasons. We just know the sequence of why he is doing what he's doing. But for now, Boaz is revealing the need for the redemption of the family's land. In fact, reminding us of Leviticus chapter 25 Verse 23, that God gave instructions uh, for the process of the Redeemer buying back the land. And so the man's response here at the end of verse 4 indicates that he had latched on to the idea of this land acquisition very quickly and favorably. Notice verse 4, Boaz says this, he says, I thought to inform you, 
saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So here, Boaz is clearly yielding to the closer relative's right, first right of refusal concerning the redemption. But notice very quickly in verse 5, when Boaz brings into the play that Ruth will be acquired as well, he immediately sees not just the acquisition of the land, but the acquisition of a wife and the potential of children. And knowing that if we get married and we have children, then more than likely I will not be able to hold on to this very long. There's a fear here in the text that he will lose his own inheritance, which is not true. And so this close relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself, verse 6, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem the right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, one thing we know for sure is this man is, is not very thorough. He asks no questions, and he makes decisions very, very quickly. In fact, when you go back and look at the requirements of the kinsman redeemer, he had to be a near kinsman. He had to be able to redeem but then the third one was very important. He must be willing to redeem. And this near kinsman has not the, the desire nor care or concern to follow through with his initial intention. This man is not willing. Well, like we've been pointing to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this man is not a type of our Redeemer, whereas Boaz is. So we think about the person and work of Christ, even although an earthly picture of redemption. But what we see here is that this man is not willing to be expended in any way for Ruth or for Naomi. But Boaz is. At great sacrifice. He's not in this for himself. He's not in this for any gain. If he has a son, he's raising up a line again for his brother Malon and for Elilamech. And in the same way, Christ himself comes for us as his bride, as his people, at great sacrifice in humility. In fact, I will remind us of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He had to be a kinsman, and thus he became a man. Christ, church, became a kinsman for us. He was a kinsman for us. He was a near kinsman. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Friend, behold the cost of the shed blood of our Redeemer, Savior, King, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Boaz is a type of Christ, but nowhere near. He just simply points us to the full atoning sacrificial work of our kinsman redeemer and our older brother the lord jesus christ i just want to remind all of us church redemption is not an accident redemption is deliberate redemption is planned it is also costly to the redeemer infinitely costly 
And we see all of this in the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 6, he favors the right, he defers to Boaz. Now notice in verses 7 and 8, this other redeemer, this other kinsman, follows the custom of the day. And this is weird. This is odd to us, admittedly. Verse 7 and 8, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. So therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Well, what we see here is that this is a very public event. Uh, Boaz here follows the custom of the day by, excuse me, the other kinsman follows the custom of the day by taking off his sandal, which was symbolic of relinquishing his right and giving Boaz the right to walk upon the land of Elilamic as his property. I thought it was interesting. So what did he do the rest of the day? Is that like a token? Is that something that sits on the shelf? You know, I had all kinds of, and I couldn't find commentaries or anyone who said such, but it seems as if the center of the text here is that Boaz takes his shoes. So I hope he had a good ride on the way home and didn't have to walk. What's interesting here is we compare chapter 3 and chapter 4 is what Boaz planned privately in the early dawn of the morning as we think about the early marriage preparations and conversation between he and Ruth, he pays the price here publicly. This is on full display. The plan began secretly, the plan began privately, but not so here. Here he's before all the leadership and the elders of Bethlehem. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes and says this, Just as Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Friends, we were chosen before the foundation of the world, yet Christ died publicly on the cross before all, poured out his blood, was under the judgment and the wrath of God for us, his people. Lastly, number three, we come in verses 11 and 12 here to the praise, uh, the response of the people. Just remember in your mind's eye just for a second, what was the response of the townspeople when Naomi and Ruth came back at chapter 2? What was it? They said, is this Naomi? And remember what Naomi said, please don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Well, we have certainly have seen from chapter 1 where where Naomi and her husband, Elilamech, were believed to be the upper echelon of Bethlehem, to the very height, to the very lowest of the low, to where people are, just don't know what to do with them. And here we see they're on the very heights again. The praise and the response that seems to be genuine adulation of the elders and all who were present there that day. Verse 11 and 12 says this, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we, We're witnesses. It's almost as, and we're glad, we're privileged to be. Now the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house, O Boaz, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman." And as we'll see next week, there was so much more to that than I think even they realized. This is language that was often used 
This is language that was often given as prayers of blessing over marriages and young women. They knew that the Messiah, there was anticipation, the Genesis chapter 3 promise of the, the gospel. There was anticipation that the Messiah would come at some point. And so these prayers of blessing were prayed. But here, this is very on target. Verse 11, what do they pray for? What is their praise? What is the threefold song that they're singing? Well, they, they sing and praise for fruitfulness, like the two women. Faithfulness, verse 11, for the glory of God. And then fellowship and participation in the messianic seed promised there in verse 12. There's a hopeful gospel anticipation that the Lord will bless this marriage and that the Lord will bring forth somehow, some way, the future Messiah or the setting up of the future Messiah. We see that he does exactly that. Don't forget, it's just the whole story from beginning to end. Boaz is his mother, is Rahab, the, the harlot saved from Jericho. Boaz certainly has an understanding and a heart towards the outsider. We see here that God has been at work in his heart. And God is bringing this marriage union, as we'll see next time together, to begin a new thing. Every time a man and a woman come together, a new thing is formed. It's a new creation, a new institution. From two different lines, from two different peoples, a new home is established. Well, we mentioned blessed assurance at the beginning of our time together. I want to conclude in our closing thoughts here with the chorus. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Here we see a song of praise. We see Naomi, no doubt, in our mind's eye, humming and whistling and praising the Lord. That song that was once lost from her heart, we see her exuberant and uh, just excited in the grace of God in Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 for our final verses here this evening. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18 and 19. Boaz here has been a type of Christ, as we've highlighted. Willing, purposeful, faithful, unselfish, and many more adjectives that we could describe him with. But church family, let's make a connection to our celebration of the Lord's table uh, here this evening. The true and greater Boaz, who came and lived the perfect life for us, his people, Every time we gather at the Lord's table, we, we, we remember the costly redemption of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he bore in his body for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. Let's close with this as I think it will be fitting for us as we prepare for the Lord's table. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times publicly for you. Verse 21, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, our hope and faith and trust is in our never-changing God, in His Son that He has sent for us. 
Well, let's take a moment to pray over the message, and then we're going to take a few moments. The men are going to come forward, and we're going to take just a few moments uh, to pray. Charity, if you'll play a song in just a minute, and we're going to prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord, and then we'll recite our member covenant together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for every remembrance we have and leading of your spirit that we have to meditate upon your sacrifice for us, your redeeming of us, your people. We call your name Jesus, for you have saved your people from their sin. Father, thank you for saving us from the penalty of our sin, which is death, hell, and the grave. Father, thank you for the hope that we have, the living hope, as Peter describes. Our hope is not dead, it's alive, it's a living hope, it's a, an eternal hope. Father, thank you for saving us, not only from the penalty of our sin, but thank you, Lord, for saving us from the power of sin. As we grow in sanctification, being led of your spirit. Father, we thank you that the allurement of sin, the power of sin is completely broken through the death of Christ. Father, one day, when we're glorified, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. No longer tempted, no longer around heartache and pain and iniquity. Father, we look forward to and anticipate that day when our salvation will be fully complete. We praise you. We meditate on these things. All glory be to Christ our King. Amen. <laughs>